This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense and his clear, open heart. In order to continue presenting these podcasts, we need your support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com jack, and you can donate there, or you can go through our Amazon or Audible affiliate links. And that's another great way to support the podcast. Thank you for your generous attention. It's a very tender time in the retreat at this point. Um, There's a sense of opening that we experience with you as we meet with you and in the hall here, an opening to the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And as it said, not just to the question of the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity, that there's something timeless that opens as the mind gets quiet, the heart softens. And it's really an open opening to liberation. The passage I believe I used on the first evening talk that I gave, where the Buddha says, not insight, nor concentration, nor virtue, nor uh, any particular state um, is the goal of this practice nor the absence of any particular state, or the absence of virtue or insight or concentration. But beyond these, the sure heart's release, the liberated heart, this is the reason, the purpose, um, the vision for offering the teachings of awakening. And since our theme is the one of identity, I'd like to talk further about the shifts of identity that start to take place, sometimes just for a moment, a glimpse, sometimes for longer periods. The shift from the small sense of self, what's called the body of fear, the sense of separateness, to that which knows, or the one who knows, to loving awareness. A poem from Juan Ramon Jimenez, called Yo No Soy Yo, 
I am not I. I'm this one walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit, and at other times I forget. The one who remains silent when I talk. The one who forgives, sweet, when I hate. The one who takes a walk when I am indoors. The one who will remain standing when I die. I am not I. I am this other one walking beside me, whom at times I do not see. And so in some moments there's this sense that our ordinary identity created by our stories about ourselves, because that's all they are really, here we are in the present and the stories come, starts to open or drop away and there are deeper moments of seeing that this is not who we really are. But in this seeing also there can arise fierce um, even the fear of getting peaceful or the fear of letting go of this identity. The cartoon I have in The New Yorker shows these two generals striding down the halls of the Pentagon with uh, all their medals and so forth. And one says to the other, it really shook me, I can tell you. I dreamed the meek inherited the earth. And so we, you know, we're comfortable in our identities and, and other things are unfamiliar to us. And part of what happens as you get quieter is you come to see your small identity, the personality, more clearly. Oi, an old Yiddish word, right? And you try to fix it in all these different ways. One teacher here, James Barris, talks about the years of his early practice where one of the inner mental notes he would make as he was walking and sitting was looking good, you know, because he wanted at least, if he couldn't do it inwardly, he wanted at least to look good for his teachers or for other people. You know that place, don't you? Or how many of us have spent hours rehearsing for our interviews, what we're going to say and how we're going to look and, you know, will I look like I'm doing okay? Will I look like a decent human being? (laughs) Do I really have to tell all this stuff? Meanwhile, we're in there at least once in a while thinking, am I doing okay? Was I really there for him? You know, did I give a wise, deep answer? Maybe I really messed this one up. So we're, we're just being human, you know, and the mind has no pride to it at all. The small self thinks this way. And as you get quiet, you see it like your pet, right? And this from Mary Oliver, comparing, the poet compares, what does she say? The poet compares the mind to the ocean. The sea can do craziness. It can do smooth. It can lie down like silk breathing or toss havoc shoreward. It can give gifts or withhold all. It can rise, ebb, froth like an incoming frenzy of fountains, or it can sweet talk entirely, as I can too, and so no doubt can you and you. And so that's it. You sit and you get all the display of the mind 
vast and peaceful and turbulent and churned up and small and large and all of these different qualities. And in the midst of what's familiar, your personality and gestures and so forth, there is also the opening of the shift of identity and opening of the gates of awakening. They're opening and you may not recognize them so clearly. So I want to speak of them. Here are some of the gates that might become familiar to you or sound familiar. The first is the gate of tears. Ajahn Chah, my teacher, said, if you haven't wept deeply, you probably haven't really started to meditate. So it's part of the dance, the game of humanity. And it doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. Indian saint who wrote, go ahead, light your candles, burn your incense, ring your bells, call out to the gods, but watch out, because the gods will come. And they'll put you on their anvil and fire up the forge and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. So the gateway of tears is really an opening to the truth of dukkha, to the first noble truth, which was part of the Buddha's vision of understanding, of awakening. This is part of the world that woven into incarnation is joy and sorrow, is loss, lamentation, grief, old age, sickness, death. Um, Woven into incarnation is pleasure and pain, light and dark, beginning and ending, birth and death. And this is what incarnation is made of. And anybody who thinks that suffering and pain is something to find your way around or get rid of or something like that, you are incarnated in the wrong place. It's just not how it is here in human realm. So you start to open and you see it and you see the magnitude of it. It's called the ocean of tears sometimes. And sometimes it manifests as insecurity. You get very quiet and there are phases in meditation where things start to dissolve. You don't know what's solid anymore. Um, And the rivers that Pascal spoke of that make us up, rivers of thoughts and perceptions and feelings and sensations, become like fine grains of sand. You move your arm and it feels like there's all these little sand grains. It was here and then it's there, but it's not quite the same arm. And then the little ants of thoughts come out of the ant hole and do their little dance and disappear into nothingness. And, And wherever you turn yourself, there's this sense of, tentativeness and things dissolving. That moment was here and now it's gone and now there's a new moment. And you feel like you have no skin. And somebody coughs over there and it like pierces your body because you're so open and still. Or you feel shaky, like I knew who I was, but and it can be literally feeling shaky. Or things seem repetitious. Dukkha is repetition, samsara, over and over. And it becomes not just repetitious, but miserable. Unstable, insecure, repetitive, without exit. You notice that. That's a state of consciousness. This is called seeing dukkha. Or you get frightened. 
And there are what are called the fear stages in any good shamanic journey or any deep discovery because fear is the membrane between what you know, who you think you are, and something new and bigger. And so fear is always going to arise as you move from what you know to something more vast. Frightening, fearful. And I remember sitting on long retreat, a year, year and a half in silence. And when these dimensions started to open up and things became frightening and fearful and I, I didn't know who I was and things seemed unstable, insecure, then all the images of death started to come. They don't always come, but they can. And I saw as if I had died as a soldier and as a woman in childbirth and in a farmer gored by an ox and, you know, lifetime after lifetime, images of all the ways that we die as human beings, one after another. And then I also saw the wars and the injustice and the racism and the... Um, mistreatment that humans do and slavery and all that displayed itself and I was just sitting there going, oh, samsara, you know, not asking for it, but at certain stages this opens. Or sometimes it's just your own body and you feel it aging and creaking and losing its fur and sagging and getting fillings in the teeth and hearing not quite as good and hips aching, and you know what I'm talking about. You go, oh, it's impermanent, isn't it? So these are kind of the universals that start to open when you get quiet in the gate of tears. Sometimes it also becomes very personal, that seeing the universal nature of loss, insecurity, injustice, sickness, and so forth, resonates with the trauma and the suffering that you've experienced in this very life, in your childhood, in your family, in your past history, the abandonment you experienced, uh, the sorrows that you carry so deeply. And here you're seeing the universalness of dukkha, but it's like this letter that a woman wrote where she said, my mother always assured me that unspeakable punishments were bound to befall a child who behaved as badly as I did. If I were you, she'd say, I'd be afraid to go to sleep at night for fear that God would strike you dead. She'd speak these words softly, regretfully, as though saddened by her errant daughter's fate. But I thought myself both unloved and unlovable. She goes on, it's just terrible. She said, the devastating words of my mother for so many years, how could anyone love someone like you? She said, but then I remembered one day when I was older, a ritual I made for myself. Whenever I had trouble sleeping, from a young girl all the way up to my teens, I would slip out from under my covers and steal into the kitchen to take a piece of bread or a bit of cheese, which I would carry back to bed with me. And there I'd pretend my hands belonged to someone else, a comforting, reassuring being without a name, an angel perhaps. And the right hand would feed me little bites of cheese or bread, and the left hand stroke my cheeks and hair, my eyes closed. I would whisper softly to myself, there, there, go to sleep. You're safe now. Everything will be all right. 
I love you. And so when this very deep opening to tears comes, and we feel like we can't go on the roll up the mat stage, the despair, the restlessness, all of that comes, it sometimes touches this very early place of dukkha as well. And yet, you can hear in that, not only is there the suffering, but there's this phenomenal intelligence of the heart that knows to go and take that little bit of bread and crawl under the covers and touch yourself like an angel, a blessing, like a mother should, and say, there, there, go to sleep and feed herself. And you have both in you. But sometimes it's not the tears of our personal sorrow. It is what's called the tears of the way. And since we're coming up on the last day of this retreat, this retreat ends on Easter. And one Catholic contemplative meditator who I respected a lot and talked to about her practice said, I remember when I was younger and meditating and trying to understand what it meant to live in this world in a sacred way. It was the week before Easter and I was filled with sadness and pain. I was looking at the crucifix and envisioning the agonies of Christ. And as I did, I lay in my room and my body began to ache as if I was dying. It felt so real. And I began to weep for Jesus on the cross and his suffering and death. And then I was Mary holding her crucified child. And I knew the crucifixion wasn't over. I was all the mothers who have lost their beloved children in an accident or disease who even today cannot feed their hungry children. I was the mother trapped in an earthquake in Iran, struggling desperately, unable to save her child and the young men, all the soldiers in the senseless battles. I was the cows and pigs on the way to slaughter and the modern generals and the Roman soldiers and the welfare mothers and the slumlord and the victims and perpetrators, all who would die in pain. And I lay there, watched over by the pain of the world, and I wept. And then Jesus and Mary were there in my body and we were holding it together, the suffering of the world. And I could see that to hold it in mercy was divine. It broke my heart open like nothing in my whole life. It became the holy pain that opens the heart. This is the purpose for our sorrows, to connect all our hearts together. There is so much mercy, mercy within mercy. So when you sit and the gate of tears opens, the fear and insecurity, the repetitiveness and restlessness, the suffering. The only way to practice is to bow to it with a loving awareness. Because if you tense and judge and resist and say, I want to get rid of it, I got to get through this, it knows and it will hang around. And of course you will tense and judge, it's not that you shouldn't. But then at some point, you learn to make space for it and you say, all right, let me see the first noble truth, my pain, the pain of the world, display yourself to me. 
and you rest in great loving awareness and equanimity and with a kind of courage of heart. I remember Deepama, our wonderful, you know, yogi, great yogi and teacher and meditation master. She was flying back, back to India and someone was taking her and the plane hit this, this really rough patch where it dropped a thousand feet and everybody was shrieking and Deepama just sat very quietly and calmly. And when it was over, she was talking to the woman who was attending and staying with her. And she smiled and she said, the daughters of the Buddha are fearless. So what's asked of you is not to get rid of your experience, but to take your seat like Prajnaparamita behind me and the Buddha and say, yes, show me your dance. Let me see it. And without resistance, it will display and open and you will come to a greater freedom. It's a gateway. Or sometimes you open to the gateway of oneness. Kalu Rinpoche. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this. When you see, you will discover that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. So you sit and the gate of oneness that starts to open, the thoughts get quiet. And when the thoughts start to get quiet and go away, do you know who else goes away? As Miss Piggy would say, moi? That's right. Because yourself is mostly constructed of stories, of thoughts. And then there opens a sense of not boundaries, of not separateness. Maybe you experienced it in the bell meditation and the big sky practice. Or maybe you experience it as you do your walking practice. Here from one Zen master, he says, One day, I let go of all notions of myself. I gave up all wanting and all struggle. I discarded the words that I think with and stayed in silence. It felt a little queer, as if I was being carried into something new, touched by some unknown, and then, ah, I lost the boundary of my physical body. I had skin, of course, but I felt that I was standing in the center of the cosmos. I spoke, but my words had lost their meaning. I saw people coming toward me, but all were the same person. All were myself. I had never known this world. I believed that I was created, but now I had to change all my opinions. I had never been created. I was the cosmos and no individual ever existed. So that's pretty cool, right? (laughs) Say, oh, I want one of those. But you know it in other ways, this oneness. Sometimes you know it walking out in the natural world here, and you look at the dazzling color of the red buds that are about to pop here on the, you know, way out of the courtyard in this kind of amazing, luminous, purple fuchsia, whatever color that is, you know, and you see the coyote in the field down by the lower campus looking around rather nonchalantly and not particularly concerned that there are people meditating around her or him. 
and you see the hawks flying in the valley that we live in. You take a taste of your oatmeal raisin breakfast and the raisin gives you the taste of every grape that was ever planted since Bacchus invented wine and you go, oh wow, raisins, grape, you know, all the wine of the world. Or you just walk outside and you fall in love in some way and you remember that you belong. Chief Seattle, if all the beasts were gone, men would surely die of great loneliness of spirit. For what happens to the beasts happens to man. And you feel your oneness and communion with the, the world that you are part of, even for moments. And the leaves on the trees become like pages in the sacred books. And there's something eternal that shines as if before time. And you've tasted this, you do know. I am the first and the last, the honored one and the scorned. I am the mother and the daughter, the bride and the bridegroom. This is from the Nagamadi scrolls. It's the, the, the voice of the divine feminine. I'm the incomprehensible silence and the voice whose sound is everywhere. For I am modesty and boldness. I am knowledge and ignorance. Give heed to me, for I am the one they call the truth. I am unlearned and yet know all. I'm the joining and dissolving. I'm what lasts and what goes. Hear me in softness. I am she who cries out and she who answers. I am what is inside of you and what is outside of you, for I am the one who alone exists and there is no one to judge me. Awake, and there you will find me, always here, new. Live, live in eternity. So there's somehow in us a deep knowing that we are woven together with life itself. And as we get quiet and open, the gate of oneness displays itself. Sometimes you enter the gate of love. Metta, compassion, the Brahma Viharas, joy. 25 kinds of rapture, you know the Buddha was a list maker. 20 kinds of inner light and then the rapture of tingling and thrilling rapture and cold rapture and warm rapture and rapture like insects crawling on your skin and rapture like dissolving into luminosity and rapture that's actually a little painful and then rapture that's ecstatic. Love, rapture, joy, devotion, forgiveness, gratitude. These are all the opening of the gateway of love. So much forgiveness, mercy, so much gratitude. And the fragrance of love parts the curtains. It moistens the lips. It gives uh, lift to the spirit. And again, you know this. You know what it's like when your heart opens. Everybody has here, you had your moments. 
Thomas Merton, the Christian mystic, so beloved and so articulate, he had this experience when he left the monastery and went to walk downtown in Louisville, Kentucky. And it's such a famous experience that they've actually named the square after him and kind of put the description of it on the, on the square at 4th Street. Here I was in Louisville at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I was theirs, and that we could not be alien to one another even if we were total strangers. It was like waking up from a dream of separateness, of self-isolation, of monastic holiness. The sense of liberation from the illusion of difference was such a relief and joy I began to laugh out loud I have the immense joy of being a member of a race in which the divine spark became incarnate. And there's no way of telling people that they're all walking around shining like the sun. And so you do your metta practice and certain moments, maybe, the heart softens. And as it opens, you become like a lighthouse and you can direct your metta to that person over there in the room and to the turkeys out the door and to people that you love. And then you can beam it out further around the planet to places that you're concerned about and across the galaxy. It's amazing what it can do. And it turns out when the heart opens in that way that there's nothing but love. It's really what everything's made of. You'll see. I read this because Pakistan has become one of the new enemies du jour, you know, was the communists or the immigrants or whoever it happens to be. As the bus slowed down to the crowded bus stop and the buses in India and Pakistan have a bus driver and then they have a conductor on the back who lets people on and takes the tickets. Mahmid, the Pakistani bus conductor in the back, leaned out from the boarding platform and called out, six only, room for six only, as the bus stopped. He counted on six passengers, rang his bell so the driver could hear it, and then as the bus moved off, called out to those who left behind with his arms spread wide, so sorry, plenty of room in my heart, but the bus is full. And when the gate of love starts to open, the personality that you've judged so much, the judging mind itself, the body that you think is imperfect in some way, the ideas you have about how you're supposed to be, they just fall away. And you see with the eyes of love. You remember being in love. You remember that madness. It was great, wasn't it? Yes, it had illusion in it too. Everything does. It's all made of illusion. But what an illusion, huh? It's great. (laughs) And it frees you. It frees you from the sense of separateness and self. And it's a gateway to a shift of identity to remember and know. Or maybe you open through the gate of emptiness. gate of oneness, the gate of love, the gate of tears, the gate of emptiness. And as you get quieter, things become more empty. The mind becomes empty. 
somewhat of thoughts. Things feel more selfless. If you walk out there, you know, taking your steps, and you say, who took that step? Where did that, who thought that thought? Nobody took that step. Wow, that's completely selfless. It's kind of mechanical. There's a sound, and there's a thought, and there's a turning of the head. There's an intention that arises. Intending to reach, then the arm reaches. Nobody does it. It's completely selfless. Or things appear and they disappear. They dissolve with no trace. A thought comes, tells this huge story. You're completely in it. And then it's gone. There I was at Ajahn Chah's monastery. I had worked as a... in in the Peace Corps on these rural health medical teams. And I partly worked with a leprosy project for a while. And um, I was meditating in my little hut in the forest, trying to quiet myself. My mind was pretty crazy and just come here. It was in the first months of practice as a monk. And as I got quieter and, you know, your body starts to open and boundaries go and things happen, you know, tingling and all this stuff. I started to notice that I couldn't feel my fingers so clearly. They felt a little bit numb. And other parts of my body, I didn't have so much sensation in some places. And then my mind kicked in and it said, oh, hmm, starting two years ago, you were working with all these people with leprosy. And the first symptom of it is this tingling and numbness. And then it went to town, I tell you. There I was, you know, with no fingers and no nose and begging on the streets and how am I going to tell my mother that now I'm a leper, you know, living in the streets of, you know, some city in Asia and what am I going to do? And finally I got up the nerve a few days later. I mean, I was just crazed. And I went and I talked to this senior monk who had a hut near me and I said, did you ever have the experience when you're sitting of your hands feeling a little numb or your body? He said, oh yeah, that happens all the time. That's just one of the different many bodies things that happen, you know, your things dissolve. And I described it more. He said, oh yeah, that happens all the time. And this whole, there I was, I lived in in incarnation as a leper, right? And then it was gone like that. And you do that. I know you do, you know. So you sit and you see all these identities appear and disappear and they dissolve without leaving a trace. And things start to have a more dreamlike quality to them, this mystery. Mind creates both samsara and nirvana, says Kensi Rinpoche, yet there's nothing much to it. It's just made of thoughts. Once you recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have a power to deceive you. And things become transparent and spacious. And then sticky things come. You know, I sit, and as I said, I'm in the process of finishing a divorce after 30 years of marriage. And the stories come and they tell themselves, if I had, or she had, or if only, or why, and all that. And they are like the tar baby sometimes. They really want to be thought. You know, maybe I could work it out differently or something. And there's a lot of emotion with them, too. And then there'll be a moment where I see, oh, huh, tar baby, I know you, (laughs) thought. And the minute it's almost like they're, you know, they're 
ghosts, goblins, demons, whatever on the screen trying to scare me, you know. And then I say, oh, yeah, I know you. And then they just disappear. They come back a little while later and say, hey, remember me? You know, let's try this again and see if I can catch you. Right? But things start to become more and more empty. And there are all kinds of ways you experience it. I saw holiness and became empty, says Rumi. This emptiness is more beautiful than existence. The pregnant void out of which all comes. It obliterates existence, and yet when it comes, existence thrives and creates more existence. Amazing. The sky is blue. The world is a blind man squatting on the road. Look around. See the emptiness. See beyond blue and blind man to that which brings birth and life to it all. And you become more and more the loving awareness, more and more the one who knows, more and more trusting the space, the timeless space of witnessing, of knowing. And nothing solid, and you relax. And the gate of emptiness brings you a great freedom where you can respond and act and live, but all of it also becomes less about you and other and solid. And there's a mysterious freedom that comes. You listen to these gates and you say, boy, they sound good, but they're not happening to me. I'm sitting here, my knee hurts. See, I'm moving my posture right now, right? My mind is still in there with the tar baby. I thought I was going to learn how to meditate and have these glorious experiences. And maybe I've had a couple moments, but a lot of them weren't like that at all. Instead, there's doubt and self-judgment and comparing, as Winnie talked about, they're all sitting like Buddhas, and I'm the only shlemiel in the room, to use a Sanskrit word, right? You know, that mind... Here I am, a teacher for hundreds and hundreds of students, some who have experienced powerful meditative openings, visions, bliss, emptiness. But that's not been my way. For a long time, this was the hardest thing for me to accept, that nothing happened. I'm not a person with big dramatic experiences. For 30 years now, it's simply been a process of practicing without being caught by my own ideas of discouragement or success. I would go for months of intensive training and no spectacular experience would happen. This was especially hard for the first 10 years, but at least I never got trapped into believing I was some special spiritual person. (laughs) Yet something did change somehow. What most transformed me were the countless hours of mindfulness, of giving a loving and caring attention to what I was doing. I learned that the inner dropping of burdens was not going to happen for me all in one piece, but again and again. I simply dropped the burdens of my judgment, my fear, of distrust of myself, 
of tightness, body and mind. At some point I discovered how automatically tightness and grasping would come, and with that realization I started letting go, opening to an appreciation of life, finding ease. The teachings slowly dawned on me that in reality there's neither coming nor going, that from the ground of being nothing ever really happens or ever will. Seeing this was like a confirmation of what I already knew. It's all here already. I became less serious, less concerned about my practice and myself. My kindness started to deepen. Oddly enough, some of my friends tell me I've become more and more like myself. They say there's been a very big change in me, but it wasn't produced by any special event. I guess it's just the fruit of being present over and over. It's that simple. And so with that over and over presence, things become beautiful and sad and human and poignant and all these things all together. And you're not trying to fix or change anything. It's the gateway of things as they are. That is also liberating. And here's Gabriela Mistral. A woman is singing in the valley, the shadows falling. Blot out the vision, but her song spreads over the fields. Her heart is broken like the jar she dropped this afternoon among the pebbles in the brook. Does she sing for a husband who looks at her silently in the dusk or for a child whom her song caresses? Or does she sing for her own heart more helpless than a babe at nightfall? Night grows maternal before this song that goes to meet it. The stars with a sweetness that is human are beginning to come out and understand the humans of this world. And in this ordinariness, you just see this is what life is, what it offers you, what you are made of. And the heart softens and the mind quiets and you say, yes, this is freedom. Now, this shift of identity is a cessation of the old way of being. And the Buddha talked about cessation and people would come to him and say, what do you mean by cessation? Does the world end? What is this cessation? And he said, there's only one cessation that the Buddhas teach, and that's the cessation of grasping or greed, the cessation of hatred and aversion, the cessation of ignorance. When these reactions to the world drop away, when this cessation happens, then the heart is liberated. And Buddhadasa, who I mentioned in our question period, wonderful teacher. He said, nirvana is the coolness of letting go, the delight of experience when there is neither grasping nor resistance. Anyone can see that if grasping and aversion were with us all day and night without ceasing, whoever could stand it? Under that conditions, living beings would either die or become insane. Instead, we survive because there are natural periods of coolness, of letting go, of wholeness, of ease, even in sleep. In fact, they nourish us so much more than the fires of grasping and fear. These are what sustain us. We have periods of rest, making us refreshed, 
alive and well, why don't we feel thankful for this everyday nirvana? You hear this and say, yeah, but what about the big nirvana? I read about that. I want that kind. I don't want the everyday kind. I paid my money. I've been sitting a long time. I want the big one, right? But it turns out that want to enter the stream, that the way that we blossom, each of us, into liberation is completely individual. And some teachers I studied with taught jhanas and samadhi and dissolving the body into light and then the cessation of experience and all these kind of yogic states. There's lots of them. And sometimes they will happen and you go, wow, and you have some illumination. Sometimes they happen and you're still kind of the same neurotic person before, only you now have a memory of these cool experiences, right? Then Ajahn Chah, in his monastery, said, no, no, that's not stream entry. He would say, there are the conditioned experiences of sights and sounds and smells and tastes, the rivers that Pascal talked about, changing conditions. And then there is awareness, the one who knows, the knowing that is the unconditioned, the unborn, the timeless. And if you've been practicing for some months and you're still caught in trying to change the conditions to get free, you've missed the boat. If you're still practicing in that way, you haven't crossed the stream. You're not a stream enterer. You enter the stream when you shift your focus from the changing, conditioned experiences of the world and rest in the unconditioned, which is awareness itself. This is your true home, your true nature. And so there are all these different gateways that invite you to freedom, invite you to the timeless, what Ajahn Chah called the original mind, jit dham, the original mind the luminous nature of what you really are, of who you really are. I don't like to use the word enlightenment, which comes from the European historical tradition of separating the spiritual and the church beliefs from Galileo and empirical science. It had its moment, it did some good things, but it reifies it like it's a state. Now I'm going to be an enlightened person, I'll get enlightenment. And I much prefer the word awakening, the Buddha awakened to the way things are. And so can you. And when you awaken, when consciousness opens and awakens, it has these beautiful qualities to it. Sometimes it's experienced as vast space and emptiness. But you turn the crystal and look through another facet and awakened consciousness is experienced as love. Everything is love. It's what we are. And you turn the crystal another facet and it's luminous clarity. And you turn it again and it's vast silence. And you turn the crystal of the awakened consciousness again and it's utter perfection. You see the perfection of everything. 
And you turn it again, and it's radiant joy. And again, and instead of emptiness, it's a, it's endless creativity. It's the 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 void giving birth to all things. Say, well, which is the real enlightenment? To awaken is to see that consciousness itself is luminous and free and has these shining dimensions and they they belong to you, that they are yours. As Zen Master Hakuin says, all beings by nature are Buddha, as ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there's no ice. Apart from beings, no Buddha. How sad people ignore what is here and search for the truth elsewhere, like someone in the midst of water crying out in thirst, like a child from a wealthy home wandering among the poor. These dimensions of awakening are your birthright. They are your true nature. And as you get quiet and enter the gate of tears and dissolution, or the gate of oneness and stand out there with the tree and feel that the tree and you are siblings, sisters, brothers. Enter the gate of the mystery of emptiness, the dreamlike nature. Where did that retreat go? Where did your childhood go? It's just gone. And there's only the present appearing and disappearing eternally. You enter the gateway by not trying to make or struggle to become free. But it's the absence of struggle, it's the opening to the way things are that frees the heart. And this mystery then can't be fixed. You can't say, I have it. Because the freedom is the freedom of non-grasping, non-clinging, non-abiding. It's not about perfecting yourself. You tried that for a long time. See how far it got you. Yitzhak Perlman, one of the greatest violinists in the world, was doing a concert in New York at Lincoln Center with the New York Symphony. And he has braces on his legs because he had polio when he was four years old. And so he can't walk really well and he walks with these braces and he takes his braces off and pulls out his Stradivarius and makes this extraordinary music. So there he was playing this violin concerto and he's partway through it and striking the bow and all of a sudden there was this loud crack and pop. A string broke and everyone in the hall could hear it. The orchestra stopped And he sat there quietly for a moment, closed his eyes, paused. What will he do, everyone was thinking. Will he limp off stage and get another violin? Will somebody come and restring his Stradivarius? You know, what's going to happen? After he paused for a few moments, he signaled for the conductor to begin again. And he re-entered the concerto playing with passion and power and purity And those who really knew, who were close, could watch him modulate and change and reconfigure the piece so that he could play it 
on three strings. When he finished, there was a silence in the hall and then an outburst of applause. People rose and cheered. He smiled, wiped the sweat from his bow, raised his bow to get things quiet. And then he spoke, not boastfully, but in a pensive, reverent tone. You know, he said, sometimes it is the artist's task to find out how much music you can still make with what you have left. So your practice is to take the life you've been given, the very life you've been given, which is a magnificent thing, and make music from it. Emptiness, joy, the ocean of tears, not to make yourself perfect, but to devote yourself to the reality of the present with the wise effort that Winnie talked about, with this shift of identity to see that you're not just that small sense of self. And to trust as you do this that the practice will have its way with you and that your heart and body and mind, that the psyche that the world knows how to open when you attend to it beautifully with loving awareness. It's so mysterious that we were born, that we have these bodies in this life, and that we can awaken. And it's completely trustworthy. You just have to stay dedicated and present. So I went with one more little story. You know, some of you perhaps, the greatest of the Sioux, Ogallala Sioux medicine men was a man named Black Elk, at least of the last century or two. Wonderful book called Black Elk Speaks. And the man, John Nyhart, who learned to speak Lakota and stayed with Black Elk and wrote down his story in these ways for many years and really came to treasure and love him. At the end of Black Elk's life, he called John Nyhart and explained that when death approaches, that a Lakota could climb Harney Peak, which is the mountain in the center of the Black Hills where Black Elk had his great vision of the wholeness of the world could climb up this mountain, the holy mountain, and see if the great spirit approved of his life. And rain would fall on those who had the great spirit's approval. And this is pretty dry, wild country. And as a young man, Black Elk had had this amazing vision of how to save his people from the soldiers and all of the settlers that had come and had spent his years trying to teach the sacred teachings of his people and weave the world together, he felt in some ways that he had failed. On the day of his climb, Black Elk was an old man. He dressed in red long johns, moccasins, war paint, and a feathered war headdress. And slowly and laboriously in his 80s, he climbed to the summit. He was oblivious to the tourists who stared at him. Nyhart teased him that he should have picked a day with at least one cloud in the sky, but Black Elk rebuked him, saying that the rain would have nothing to do with the weather. At the top of the peak, not far from the tourists, the old man 
in his moccasins and his leggings, lay down under a blue sky. To his astonishment, Nyhart watched as a few small clouds immediately formed over Black Elk, and a soft rain began to fall. And Black Elk wept with relief. He felt that even though he had not succeeded in fulfilling his vision, the Great Spirit was signaling him that he had done his best. So you too offer yourself to this retreat in your own way and notice that the gates open for you as they will. Offer yourself with a kind of devotion and presence, not to perfect yourself, but with a great love, a loving awareness and a deep trust in the mystery. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We appreciate your support, and we ask you to continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash jack. Look forward to seeing you next week. Yeah.